0: This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by T Row Price. At T Row Price, we examine opportunities firsthand to help uncover the full story for our clients' investments. Put our strategic investing approach to work for you. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage.
1: technological advances, industry disruption, and shifting economic imperatives are rapidly changing the workforce. On Tuesday, December 18th, The Washington Post took an in-depth look at trends and innovations that are creating the next generation of jobs and reshaping how, when, and where we work. In this segment, experts will discuss how to create a productive workforce today for the jobs of tomorrow. Let's listen. Good morning, everyone. My name is Danielle Paquette. I'm the national labor reporter here at the Washington Post. Uh, We can't have a future of work without workers. So I'm very pleased to introduce this morning two experts who are focused on workforce development at a time when our jobs are so rapidly changing by technology. Uh, We have beside me Philip LaPelle. He is the assistant director at MIT's Washington office, where he coordinates the Institute's workforce education mission with federal agencies and Congress and Liz Wessel. Uh, she's the CEO of WayUp, a platform that connects early career candidates with employers. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone you can tweet questions for our panelists using the hashtag #PostLive. So uh, let's start with Liz. You know, WayUp, amazing platform. It has millions of users. First of all, how does it work and where did you get the idea for this?
0: Sure. Um, I'll start with where we got the idea and, and trickle into how it works. So. Um, Nice to meet you guys. I'm Liz. I'm one of the two co-founders of Way Up, along with my co-founder, JJ. Uh, We met at Penn, University of Pennsylvania. And from a candidate perspective, saw just how frustrating the job search was. Um, When you're a sophomore, you're expected to get the internship that will lead to your junior internship, which is expected to often lead to your full-time job after you graduate. But when you're a sophomore, or a junior, and sometimes even a senior, you have no idea what any of these jobs mean. So I remember applying to one of my first uh, internships that I ended up doing in private equity, and to be honest, having no idea what private equity was. And then I went and applied for a job in marketing, and again, or an internship in marketing, and again, thought marketing was just making TV commercials. And I just felt like there wasn't this transparency into what someone actually does on the job, um, what makes one company special versus another, uh, and so on and so forth. And then on the employer side, I found that employers were relying on flying out to career fairs, which often resulted in many students going unlooked. And so JJ and I decided to leave our jobs after a few years. He was at McKinsey, I was at Google, and, uh, and start way up. So what WayUp does, um, we connect right now, it's about 5 million, but growing uh, twenty to 35,000 users a week. So it's about 5 million early career candidates, um, most, most of whom are in college, um, just under half of whom have recently graduated in the last three years. And we connect them with employers who are looking to hire them for internships, full-time jobs, part-time jobs, and so on. And so I'm sure we'll get into what types of jobs and all that later.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one thing before we move on to fill up, I hear from employers all the time that it's so tough to find workers to fill those vacancies. Uh, you know, unemployment right now it's at a 49-year low. How often are you hearing from employers about what they're looking for?
0: So there are definitely some employers who work with Way Up where their problem is not quantity. Their problem is we actually get too many applicants and it's more about how do we find the quality or how do we find the diversity. Um, They'll get so many great diverse candidates at the top of the funnel. But then they end up hiring so many referrals that there's so few <laughs> spots left for for uh, new types of candidates to apply or, or get hired for so i would say actually more often than not we are having two types of employers one is and and this is probably a little bit more frequent with college um, we get too many applicants how do we find the right ones and so we do a lot of we're we're talking a little bit backstage about soft skills assessment we do a lot around how do we help employers get candidates through the funnel, and how do we help candidates develop soft skills throughout the interview process? Um, and then on the flip side, there are some very niche jobs, of course, uh, that where they're looking for a student, they just don't know where to find it. And often the biggest problem is just, well, you were looking at only five schools. And if you start looking at all of the schools in the country, I mean, our users represent 6,600 schools throughout the country. If you look at all of the schools and you start to look for specific criteria, you're not going to have such a hard time.
1: Fascinating. Philip, you address workforce development by fostering relationships between schools and government entities. Uh, tell us a little more about that and how you're preparing people for jobs that don't even exist yet. <laughs> <laughs>
2: um, okay, so there's, there's two big initiatives at MIT that connect into this that, that I'll talk about a little bit. Um, the one, the older one, the little more mature one, has to do with our work on advanced manufacturing. Um, MIT was one of the Uh, universities that was asked uh, during the Obama administration along with a bunch of um, half universities half companies and a little bit of representation from labor to look at the future of manufacturing and at what we needed to do to get high-skilled manufacturing jobs back and retain them in the US Um, and that's a program that led to the creation of 14 so-called manufacturing USA institutes which the Trump administration has continued for the most part to support uh, we haven't had any new ones in a few years, but the existing ones are, are uh, getting up to speed and, and some of them going pretty strong. Um, we've both worked on the overall design of that program, <clears throat> excuse me, but, and also had some deep involvement in a couple of the in, uh, specific institutes. Um, you were talking about you know, training people for new jobs, so there's a, uh, One of the institutes that I've done the most work with, MIT has the education lead for what's called the AIM Photonics Institute, an obscure emerging area of manufacturing called Integrated Photonics. To try to tell you what this is, if you've seen pictures of the um, automated vehicles that are being tested by um, Google, Uber, various companies, companies, they have these big things on their roofs that are arrays of sensors that help the car know where it is, right? If you wanna get those kinds of sensors down in cost and size, et cetera, to where they can be put into every car, they're gonna need to be not separate packages of optical and electronic devices, but packages in which those things are are integrated into much smaller and, and denser things. And there's also uses of this in many other areas, but that's a good way to think about it. So this is one of the areas in which one of these advanced manufacturing institutes was created. It's, it's a, got several, many industry partners, many academic partners, but MIT has the lead education role, uh, coordinating education activities, not just that we do, but with community colleges in the area. The foundry for this thing is in Albany So there's kind of a corridor being built from Cambridge to Albany and beyond to Rochester, which is a a historic area of great strength in in optics. Um, And there's a story that's been floating around recently about a student, for example, who went to Quinsigamond Community College, which is a college in central Massachusetts. His name is Sean Reese, and he got a two-year degree there in electrical engineering technology. He got an internship through AIM Photonics to work at MIT Lincoln Labs. Spent a summer working there with the people who are just starting to bring up the training in this area. Is now um, continuing to work and studying for a four year degree at University of Massachusetts at Lowell. So this is really fascinating from several ways. First of all, we have a deep industry involvement looking at the roadmap and trying to figure out where the jobs are gonna be needed as this industry emerges. And this is a very detailed roadmap, what kind of products they're gonna need, when, who's gonna do which parts of it, and we're trying to get them to actually think about what the what the new jobs are that go with that. Some of those jobs are design jobs and new skills that they need to teach to their engineers, PhD engineers, master's levels engineers, and some of them are, the, are technician jobs for the people who are gonna to have to do packaging and test and and validation, and, and maybe assembly also, but. Um, and so that inter- makes us interact with these community colleges and other smaller four-year institutions in our area and, and near where th- some of the fabs are that in, in, a, in a pretty new way for us, and it's really interesting.
1: That is interesting, and Liz, Phil, I think you both can weigh in on this next question. You're, no, you're, you're describing manufacturing jobs. Mm-hmm that you wouldn't really think require much what is known as soft skills, communication, management, you know, the ability to get along with others. But I hear from employers often that they're really looking for people who have the kind of qualities you can't automate So how do you foster those soft skills among the young folks you help uh, connect to careers? Let's start with Liz.
0: Absolutely. So we recently um, were doing an analysis, and it was pretty similar to other external studies we've read, where about 60% of candidates were failing first-round interviews for soft skills reasons, and um, soft skills for people who don't really necessarily know how to quantify it or, or think about it. That's things like, when you hop on the phone, how are you answering the phone? Um, how are you communicating? Did you answer the phone WhatsApp? Because we actually hear that happen. Um, or are you answering <laughs> the phone, hi, this is Liz. Is there background noise? Um, you know, Is there music playing? Uh, Is your baby crying? You might be, you know, I think it's something like 25 or 26% of college students are parents. So you might not be able to afford a babysitter at night. So if your baby's screaming in the background and you have an interview, um, often an employer, we were talking a little bit about bias earlier, might look at that and say, well, they don't even have soft skills. babysitting as someone's baby? You know what I mean? Um, and then, of course, the list goes on. It's, a lot of it is around communications. And so what we're doing at Way Up is actually really interesting. It's the only company that I know of, at least, that's doing this. But something we saw, we call it Source Screening Coach. We've been doing it for about a year. Um, something we saw was that Employers would, and it, it kind of makes sense if you think about it, they would get, let's say, 1,000 candidates. Um, one of our employers got 15,000 applicants for 75 internship positions. Extremely, extremely, extremely prestigious employer. And so they said, we they hire a lot of MIT students and so on. Good. So they said, um, we want to interview all of these candidates. But first of all, we know that Historically, referrals have always gone in through first, and referrals are, are less likely to be underrepresented minorities because inherently in the name underrepresented minority, that means you're less likely to know someone at that company or in that industry, so you're less likely to get a referral. So they were going through referrals, then they were going through career fair candidates. Now 70% of candidates that they met at career fairs were men, and this was already predominantly a male-focused uh, company, and or a male-heavy company. And so, a male heavy company. And so they, they said, how do we get everyone at the top To get interviewed and we said what if we do your first round interviews and then on top of that we never fail someone for soft skills reasons we only fail them if they get the answers wrong to questions that you tell us what the right and wrong answer is and instead even if they completely bombed on soft skills they answered the phone what's up how you doing whatever we're actually going to send them an email with customized feedback on their soft skills so that they shouldn't have those problems in the second round So we did that. We've done that with thousands and thousands of candidates for several different clients now, and we're doing it with more and more employers. And what's so exciting is we're seeing the number of black and Hispanic candidates or women in tech going way up, no pun intended, to get to the final round because of the fact that they're actually just getting told early on, hey, this is something you need to work on. It's not that they don't want to work on it, it's that no one ever told them.
1: Wait, so you're saying millennials are responding to feedback well? <laughs> yes, <laughs> okay. and actually
0: a lot of college students are Gen Z now, so.
1: <laughs> oh, okay, I should not make <laughs> assumptions. Phil, I know you have thoughts on this and how bias might play a role.
2: Uh, well, bias is certainly an interesting question. Whenever you start to Come up with numbers like sixty percent fail. You have you want to make sure that you're measuring the right thing, right? So, um, I I saw recently that soft skills have started to be used in some of the international assessments um, across countries in in um, mathematics and science. You know, surprisingly enough, I hadn't hadn't known that, and I'd love to really look into that and see how they are Mm. correcting for cultural differences and things like that. But um, I guess. The the main thing, I, I, I mean, it's really fascinating to hear hear what Liz is talking about there and what they're doing about it. I just want to expand on it and say that that's mostly about the soft skills getting you into the job, right? Mm. And we certainly, now, of course, the reason that people care about it, getting in, you into the job, well, part of it may just be that you make a bad impression, but most of it is because you need soft skills in the job these days Absolutely. for any job, right? And we certainly hear that when we do these these sessions with, um, you know, companies that are, that are, as I said before, road mapping new, new industries and thinking about how they're gonna work and what jobs they need, and you ask them what skills they need, they often, the first things they write down are not specific technical skills, even though I'm talking, you know, let's be very clear, I'm talking about STEM jobs here, right? I'm talking about engineering jobs or jobs that for engineering companies supporting them but they often start talking about the soft skills. And part of it is, is just the sort of appearance, how you talk, how you, but part of it is deeper communication skills, the ability to write, the ability to, to tell people either in words or either, either verbally or in writing about your work in a way that's meaningful for them to be able to do their part of it that, that has to interface with it teamwork collaboration is a, is is a huge thing. I mean the workforce has, has changed in those kinds of ways. The work environment has changed there's much more uh, teaming many more things are done between companies rather than integrated companies and all those things drive it drive you in the direction of Many people at many different levels within a um, a company or a a manufacturing stream that might cross many companies have to be able to work with one another much more than than they used to.
0: And it's not surprising as a result that we're seeing companies mainly larger companies not small companies are investing so much in training programs and these training programs are no longer just about the hard skills of here's how you enter your time or or this or that it's actually now starting to be here's how what we define as collaboration at this company and here's how we think about teamwork and here's how to go to your manager about a problem i mean it's pretty fascinating
2: well that's interesting it's great to hear that companies are reinvesting in that stuff because what we've tended to hear on the technical side is that companies used to be able to afford to do internal training and technical issues and less and less of them have done that over the last probably 15 years or more.
0: Yeah, Um, so if you look at the, I think it's the 12 largest employers of, of, and I'm only talking entry level candidates of course, but of entry level candidates, they've all across the board been reinvesting, but just substantially investing more year over year over the past few years in soft skills. So, and I think by the way, when we ask them why, Part of it is actually to be able to attract more different types of candidates um, so that people of different backgrounds who don't all speak the same or look the same can adopt.
2: So from the, from the education perspective, the question is how do we get this training into, into, into the education right. system, right? Mm-hmm. And I guess what I would say is that we're going beyond the traditional approach where a a college or university would say, well, you have your major and you have to Mm -hmm. learn a lot in this area. And then we want to take you to take a few courses and other things too and learn about more stuff. Mm -hmm. And there's certainly still some of that. Um, um, I I like the model the National Science Foundation uses to talk about this, which is that we're trying to train people with a a set of skills that looks like a T for a career, where the the vertical part of the T is... deep expertise in some area and the the top bar of the t is is these skills that you need Mm. to be able to connect to other areas right but that's not just about making them take a mix of courses it's about changing the way that some of the work is done in courses in the experiential learning experiences that more and more of us are doing on camp on or off campus, whether that's internships like you guys work with, or whether it's-
0: Extracurriculars.
2: Pro- or, or, or curricular, project-based learning in the curriculum, flipped classroom models. Um, 80 plus percent of our students participate in undergraduate research opportunities. And in all those things, you, you learn some of these soft skills, how to talk to people, how to take directions from people, how to partner. Um, you know, as opposed to the motto of, I mean, we still certainly have very strong honor codes, but we've changed the way we talk about, it's your work, don't talk to anybody about it, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
2: It's, there's now much clearer lines. Talk when you're doing homework and then write it up yourself, right? And don't talk on the tests. But so it's, it's, it's really, um, it's permeating, I think, through, through the classrooms, not just the extracurricular activities.
1: But how do you extend this learning this training over time? We already know that technology is changing things seemingly every day. How do young workers, how can they prepare to stay relevant in their skills throughout their careers?
0: Well, I will say one really exciting area. that I'm fascinated by is online education. Um, one of my friends, Zach Sim, started an amazing company called Codecademy. If uh, you're not familiar with it, it teaches you how to code online. And I wanted to learn SQL the other day, and so I just for free started. And you can also pay and get extra features, but just started taking classes online. And um, I will be really interested to see if there are more soft skills related online Mm -hmm. courses because most of the ones I've seen are definitely more specific to hard skills. But what manager hasn't said to their team member, you need to get better at giving feedback, at collaboration, at something soft skills related. And imagine if that that student, or, or not student, that early career employee could go online and take a whole course on it and maybe have some interactive component. That would be awesome.
2: So the question of whether or not you can find that kind of stuff online is a really interesting one. I I don't know what's out there. What I will say is MIT has been very involved in the online education movement. We co-founded edX, one of the major providers of online courses uh, offered by many, many institutions. But the the nonprofit that runs it is a a co-project of MIT and Harvard. and one of the things that people always try to do in those kinds of settings, the people who are deeply uh, entrenched in, in learning theory and, and in, in modern work on, on education research, um, is to create um, some of these social interactions in the online classes. Hmm. It's really hard. I'd say that that's going more slowly. The ability to create online community learning communities is going more slowly than other aspects of that work.
0: I will be fascinated to see what universities do do though to to for, I was asked on a panel recently, what class do I wish had been taught at Penn when I went to school? And I said, adulting 101. Like I graduated <laughs> and had no idea what a 401k is. I had no idea how to do my taxes, and I had to learn all these things. And very fortunately, I had people around me who could help me learn them. But. I I will say there's this entire soft skills component about how to give feedback, how to get feedback, and so on, that I'd be curious to see if universities start investing in, especially because universities are continuing to boast about their placement rates for students getting jobs. But this is such a big component that historically has always been on the, on the shoulders of at least to the outsiders. Obviously, you've, you've taught me a lot about what universities are doing within courses, but it's been on the shoulders of career services. But there's one career service professional for every several thousand students in the average school. So that's obviously not scalable.
1: Right now, you both are, are gatekeepers for opportunity in different ways, uh, and you're helping people find work how do you, when you work with technology or when you build technology, reduce the chance of discrimination within those algorithms?
0: I'm I'm happy to start. So um, we're we're really excited about the fact that a third of our user base is black and Hispanic, and two-thirds are female. So we work with a really diverse audience pool. And what I will say is um, in our algorithms, there's no data science when it comes to having, you know, it's completely blind to race to gender um even to experience because we see that people are more likely to get experience um, again if you're not an underrepresented minority within a specific industry and i'll throw that underrepresented minority term on its head for a second we work with a client in the cosmetics industry that is just dying to get more men at their company because it's almost all women Mm -hmm. and so i hear a lot of chuckles but you know underrepresented minorities come in all, all shapes and forms and so um One thing I will say is for us, it's all about just providing data to employers. So I'll give you a a sad story. Um, One of the largest employers in the country, I would say, I think it's a Fortune 50, uh, we work with them and we were able to show them, we, we get all the hiring data and we get the top of funnel data. So sometimes if we're not involved in that recruiting process and the interviewing process, we won't necessarily know what happens in the middle. But at the end of recruiting season, which for a lot of companies, large companies just ended for seniors, we said to them, okay, we you know, sh- sent you this many, uh, this percentage of black and Hispanic candidates, this percentage of women in tech, et cetera. Now send us your data of who you hired, and we matched the two. And it went from like 36% applicants who were, not, or who were people of color or, or who were black and Hispanic all the way down to less than 10% of them being hired. And when we showed them that data, they immediately told us to stop. They didn't want to see it and they they moved on with the conversation. And so I do think that there's an inherent problem with companies, um, but I will say for every one sad story, I have probably 10 happy ones with employers wanting to work with us so that they can see that data and start changing things within their process. One point I will make is there are so many assessment companies that you might be alluding to that make it so that you apply for a job and you immediately get an assessment sent to you. And the assessment is supposed to be completely unbiased. But a lot of our customers use those assessments and across the board are turning off of them because even though these assessment companies guarantee no bias, they're still seeing that underrepresented minorities are not getting through at the same rates as otherwise represented minorities. And even Amazon had that famous um, kind of study that came out a few months ago where they had AI professionals and data science professionals within Amazon build an assessment that they thought would remove any bias and yet, Still, lo and behold, Amazon has unbelievable engineers, some of the best in the world, and even they couldn't remove that bias.
1: Sounds like a challenge that is ongoing. Philip, how does MIT deal with this? So um, let me
2: talk on two ends of the spectrum. On the, on the workforce side and the getting jobs, I have less interaction with the actual MIT get students getting jobs, the you know, campuses are pretty well connected for that, but these manufacturing institutes that I was talking about, for example, I mean, because we're doing more work with community colleges and with uh, regional four-year colleges, and I I should say it's very important to say in the case of the program I talked about before at AIM Photonics that the state of Massachusetts has been a great partner in this and have put money into, for example, developing test labs at MIT and then labs with given money to Worcester Polytechnic and Quinsigabon Community College to put together a joint facility with the same equipment so that people who are their students can learn to do the things that are developed at MIT in terms of test procedures and 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 the idea is that that will also be used as an industry training site eventually and a certification site when we get into the certification world in some of these new areas the certificates don't don't exist yet but they will in these new areas so that's that's a really interesting kind of new thing for us. From the point of view of getting students in to uh, colleges like MIT, um, first of all, we're pretty lucky that if the students get in, we can be need blind in our admissions policy. There's unfortunately a diminishing number of schools that can say that, but those that are still in that category uh, are trying really hard to stay there. However, there are not enough people applying. There are not enough people who, who, from diverse backgrounds of all kinds, whether it's of color, rural, et cetera, uh, with the possible exception of international students for whom we get more applicants than, than we can take. Um, there are not enough students who think maybe they could do it. There's large groups of students for whom they understand the value of going to college, they understand the value, the value that it will give them in terms of lifelong earnings, but they don't think about going somewhere other than the closest college. So there's an outreach effort that certainly we do, but that all of our major um, uh, partners and competitors in mm-hmm. the education system um, are also trying to figure out how to do better to find people who we think can succeed in our colleges and just get them to apply. Now. Once they're there, they may need some more support services. But they're not different from the kinds of support services that we try to make available to all students. It's more just sort of knowing that certain people may need to be watched a little bit at the beginning and given
0: help to stay in.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, we have about three minutes left and a question from the audience. Someone has tweeted, for both of you, is state policy or federal policy better at helping foster relationships between employers and universities to improve training and job readiness?
0: Hmm. <laughs> I've never thought about that. Do you have a strong opinion? I, I don't actually think I, I have an informed enough opinion to share.
2: So I can't say better or worse. I, I, I'll say different and that they're both needed. Um, You know, federal policy generally tends not to want to pick particular industries um, and support particular industries at the expense of others. It tends to more broadly say, let's go take this example of manufacturing. We want to, you know, promote manufacturing everywhere. States are very willing to say, we want that industry here. We're going to give them incentives to do it here, and we're gonna give money to our state colleges to develop new training programs and things like that. So they have different roles, and um, hopefully those roles are well coordinated um, and there's a good handoff, and to some extent, the universities have a role in making sure that that happens and and, uh, uh, helping find the right support from the, whether it's from the federal side or from the state side or local government side for different pieces of the puzzle.
0: I will say it's it's not answering the question, but it's it's relevant. Um, this is definitely not pointing to the MITs or Penns or Stanford's et cetera of the world, but with respect to almost. Uh, the non-top, let's call it two to three hundred, or even five hundred schools in the country, top, you know, according to whatever uh, superficial rankings you want to point to. Um, more and more employers are telling us we're not even relying on universities anymore for anything when it comes to this training. Um, we've we've given up on university. We know that if we're recruiting from a school that's not on this list, that we should just expect to invest a little bit more uh, in the training at the very at the upfront. And uh, or or be open to recruiting people who might be a little bit less obvious of a match. And that's okay because we know after the first six months, we'll get them to be on par with a lot of their peers. So I will say, while it doesn't answer state versus federal, it does bring up just universities in general. A lot of employers are just kind of saying, we're not even expecting too much of them. Again, with the exception Mm of the top three, four, or 500, which out of over 7,000 universities, doesn't actually look like that much.
1: Well, I'm hearing from you guys that there's some kind of confidence cap gap uh, among prospective hires. Some people, maybe they don't think they're meant to go to MIT, or maybe they're not ready for that particular job. But it sounds like employers who who look to you both for, for new hires are, are kind of desperate in this moment for people they can shape and mold for these future jobs. So what would you tell a job seeker today about their chances? You know, how, What kind of pet talk would you give?
0: <laughs> um, we do it all the time. So... Uh... We're constantly telling people, first of all, you should apply for more jobs than you might necessarily like don't especially if you're in college. You are often one of 15,000 applicants for 75 positions. So at some schools, I've heard career services tell people apply for only three or four jobs and just focus on those three or four. But you are very, very unlikely to get um, one of your top jobs if that's your if that's your path. And we just see that statistically. This isn't an opinion. This is just statistics and math. Um, because if you weren't in the first thousand, your application might never be seen. So we tell people first of all, I think it's something like two percent of applications are. Ever actually, resulting in an interview, and that's not because the 98 percent, and that's in the U.S. across the board, all all areas of expertise, um, and that's not because of necessarily people being unqualified. It's just people don't recruiters don't have the chance to look at all the resumes. So, number one, apply for more than you think. Um, number two, when it comes to studying, we're constantly telling candidates or in their college uh, life. Employers don't care outside of these professions, in which case, if you want to work in these professions, you should probably major in something relevant. If you want to be a doctor, you probably shouldn't major in English. Um, You might want to, or at least you should prepare to go to med school. If you want to be a lawyer, prepare to go to law school, et cetera. But what I will say is that we are telling students, Employers are becoming more and more willing to hire people of all types of majors and backgrounds. We have investment banks using WayUp specifically to recruit non-finance majors now, and non-engineering majors too, because that's even growing in popularity. So study something you're passionate about. I could go on and on,
1: but we only have a minute left, so I'm not going to keep going, but those are two of them. And Phil, in 46 seconds.
2: <laughs> so so I'll let Liz handle the how do, how do you get your resume read part, and then I'll maybe say something about you know, once you're in there, if you get that first interview. What you've heard from us is that um, people don't go into jobs now with all the skills that they're gonna need to stay in the job. So be prepared to talk about the skills you have that are relevant Mm. for the job. And please, do research on what the company actually does. It's amazing how many people don't do that. Um, But also be prepared to talk about the things that you wanna learn in the future and the things that you are interested in that you don't know how to do yet that you hope you'll learn there or you hope that they'll be willing to help you learn as you go on and as they grow, you wanna grow with them in new directions.
1: That's really great advice both. Uh, Thank you everyone for attending. Thank you to our guests. Uh, Next up is Senator Young and my colleague, Heather Long. Thank you so much.